Red Apple Media is proud to celebrate 100 years as one of America's most influential radio stations and New York's first. WABC. WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Um, we have a lot of things to cover today, but we're going to begin, or I'm going to begin, with the, the morning, the morning over the killing of the two brave cops, uh, Jason Rivera, whose funeral yesterday, dramatic funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral, with thousands of the Blue Line, thousands of New York's finest, thousands of New York's cops. In attendance, and of course, the we also mourn Wilbert Mora, uh, who was also killed in, I guess, a domestic violence call. It's a terrible thing, and it has so much to do uh, with their bravery and their sacrifice. We mustn't forget that in the midst of all these discussions, their bravery and their sacrifice. Two very young cops. It's a horrible story. We must also give sincerest condolences to wives, families, friends, relatives, as two of New York's finest were killed in the line of action, in the line of fire. Also tragic, also horrible. And we hope that God looks over them. We hope they rest in peace in the next life. Like many of you, I'm a believer, so we can only hope that God will watch over them. But I want to say, uh, I want to talk today about this, my own views. We will have two distinguished guests to talk about it in this first hour. One is uh, Mike Goodwin from the New York Post, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter in the New York Post, and uh, Greg Kelly whose dad was, of course, police commissioner. But uh, uh, Greg is a longtime broadcaster now with Newsmax and show on WABC Radio. This um, crime wave in New York uh, has reached astronomical proportions. It is getting worse, not better. And if it isn't If it isn't fixed, and it can be fixed because we've gone through this before. I've been a New Yorker myself. Um, for the better part of the past 50 years, actually. A few, uh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years off for some service in Washington, D.C., but essentially I've been around, I've seen the city safe, and I've seen the city unsafe. Obviously safe is better. I've seen it get fixed during the uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg years. I've seen spectacular police commissioners, um, like Greg Kelly's father, Ray Kelly, Bratton, Bill Bratton, others. But there is an attitude, a political attitude. I, I want to be as you know sober on this as I can. I don't want to rant and rave. But there's an attitude of uh, permissiveness, an attitude where Somehow, in the minds of people on the far left, the radical far left, that the criminals have more rights than the victims, including the police. 
that helping the criminal is more important than protecting the cops or the civilian victims. This is an insane theory. It's a woke theory. It's part of this woke, far-left, radical, critical race theory where everything is racialized and all common sense is out the window. And frankly, all good laws of policing and all good jurist approaches, courts approaches, judges approaches, all that's out the window because a tiny group of far, far left people who do not represent this city or this country have at least temporarily taken control in Washington uh, and New York, New York City, New York State, and the big cities around the country. I mean, as hideous as New York's problem is, unfortunately, tragically, this city is not alone. This state is not alone. You know, you see it in Chicago, and you see it in Los Angeles, and you see it in San Francisco, and you see it in Seattle, and you see it in Portland. Uh, I recall on the uh, our Fox Business show, Cudlow, from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, every day, you know, we, we've been putting a map up on the full screen showing uh, 15 major U.S. cities, uh, all run, you know, elected officials, mayors, by far-left Democrats uh, who are experiencing record homicide rates across the country. We've seen uh, looters, rioters, people burning down cities go unpunished. And we've seen uh, spokespeople for the far, far left, the radical left, um, continue to say they have to protect uh, people of color, blacks and browns, I guess. I don't know anymore if that includes Asians. It should. I was reading a story, I don't know, yesterday. I was coming back from Washington on the train, and I think I was reading a story yesterday that this uh, this group, Black Lives Matter, uh, has a $60 million budget, and no one has any clue where that money is going and how it's being spent or who's running the place. Here in New York, we have this crazy guy, whatever, Hawk something or other, uh, who is, I guess, not strictly speaking affiliated with the national Black Lives Matter, but he was talking when uh, Eric Adams became mayor about um, better not go back to the old ways of policing because then we would have rioting in the streets, something to that effect. I mean, this is crazy stuff. That guy should have been, if you ask me, should have been thrown in jail. He's an insurrectionist. And the message is very clear. But the irony, the irony, the tragic irony is that it is precisely the African Americans and Hispanics and other minority groups uh, who get the worst of it. They have the worst consequences. They have the highest homicide rates. They get killed. Their kids get killed. Their schools are ruined. Their businesses are ruined. I mean, we've made phenomenal progress 
with African-American economics, jobs, employment, business ownership, Jason Riley's piece in this morning's Wall Street Journal op-ed page. I'll get to that later in the show. But this inner-city crime is destroying that progress, destroying the schools, destroying the businesses. It is they who get the worst of it. And yet their spokespeople blame proper policing and proper law enforcement and proper judging they blame that on racism. It's whitey, white supremacists. No, it's not. It's just people who are lawless and their supporters keeping them out of jail. No bail, no jail. We have this crazy guy, Alvin Bragg. We'll talk about him in a minute. The governor met with him yesterday. I don't know what came out of it. She issued some cryptic statement. I have no idea what what she was telling us. I have no idea what she was telling us. We can uh, what is it? We can have justice, social justice, and uh, and regular justice. I'm trying to look for the exact phrase. I mean, she's defending Hochul, defending the uh, no bail. Safety and justice must go hand in hand. Kathy Hochul, governor of New York. Safety and justice. I don't know what that means. Safety and justice for all the ordinary folks, everybody. Why can't we have a colorblind law system? Colorblind legal system? You know... Among the many tragedies in this story, tragedies of the cops, tragedies of their families, record high homicide rates. What was the number I saw? 2018, we had 289 people killed in this city. In 2021, it was 485. And of course, there are you know thousands of lessers. We're losing here in New York City. That's what is also such an important part that not just the loss of life, the loss of safety, the loss of kids, but this rapper, this crazy rapper, blue something or other, owns guns, shooting people, threatening cops, he's out on bail. See blue, laws guns in his videos and the judge lets him out. Said he had no choice, I guess. Uh, huh? Really? Really? But we're losing New York. We are losing New York. Between this record crime wave, high, high taxes, socialist leaders elected by tiny minorities, people don't vote much here anymore, Businesses leaving. We're losing our financial base. We're losing our financial industry base. We are losing to Florida badly. You know, I know it's a cliche, I suppose. It's not weather. It's not just going down to the warm weather. 
you know, the free state of Florida. They have much more sensible rules regarding COVID. They don't have any income taxes. They don't have this kind of crime problem in Miami. There's crime in Miami, but not like this. They don't have far-left people running the city councils. They don't have far, far-left people running the running the county executives, running the uh, mayoralties. They don't have a far-left legislature. They don't have a far-left governor. They have school choice and vouchers. And as I say, more sensible COVID policies. They don't have mandates. They don't have critical race theory in the schools. This is Miami, but all over Florida, which is whooping New York and every area. Their population is increasing rapidly. Our population is declining rapidly. Our governor's positions on COVID and masking and mandating make no sense whatsoever. No sense. Neither does Biden's for that matter. It's a different subject, related but different. This is not a free city. There's a free state of Florida, but we have a subjugated city in New York. Morale's low. Steve Schwarzman, my longtime friend who is a big-time banker, runs uh, Blackstone, was quoted in the meeting. uh, They had a big meeting, uh, business people, with uh, this Alvin Bragg, crazy district attorney person. And he said, people won't come back to work because it's not safe. The subways aren't safe. How many times have we read people getting pushed onto the tracks in front of an incoming train? This is, I mean, 40 years ago or whatever it was, 30, 35 years ago, 30 years ago, Rudy Giuliani came in and the issue was graffiti in the subways and turnstile jumping, both of which are still around and have come back, I'm sorry to report, but this is people getting pushed off the, off the side onto the tracks in front of an incoming train to get killed. What is that? Who would do that? And it says, well, people who are mentally ill. Well, I have enormous sympathy with any form of mental illness. But these are also mentally ill people with criminal records who should not be on the street. They should be in jail. I mean, we're going to have to change everything. We're going to have to change the culture and create a new culture of safety and security. And we're going to have to change our politics. I am a conservative. I proudly served two presidents in my time, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. I have advised many other presidents. I am a conservative. But we just need a moderate position, a middle ground in New York. We've gone so far to the left, defending the rights of the criminals over the rights of the victims or the cops or the parents or the kids or the schools or the businesses. This cannot, this cannot last. We will destroy a great city which would break our hearts. We cannot continue this. Something very major has to change, and it's got to change fast. 
We'll talk some more about this. I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, I'll be right back on the other side. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I am a longtime New Yorker. I love this city. My wife loves this city. She is a highly respected artist, painter. We devote ourselves to all things civic, philanthropic. I've been working in this city, in government, on Wall Street, as a TV broadcaster, as a radio broadcaster, since the 70s, since the actually the mid-70s, since the early 70s, what am I saying? What's happening here breaks my heart. The deaths of these brave young cops breaks my heart. The tragedy for their families breaks my heart. What's happening to our great city breaks my heart. We'll be right back after this. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Um, I guess I just want to say a couple of more words about this. There's lots and lots. We're going to talk about the economy. We've got a lot of numbers out. They're not good. The inflation rate continues to rise. That's not good. We've got a Supreme Court uh, opening. We'll talk about that. The Russian-Ukraine story uh, gets worse. Joe Biden is getting outwitted, I think, by Vladimir Putin. But I I do want to just return. I mean, you know, um, this is a national radio show. Uh, I've been doing this for a couple of decades. We're talking about the New York tragedy with these two young cops uh, who lost their lives uh, in their service of their city. But it really isn't just a New York story. It is a national story. Because unfortunately and tragically, the crime wave here in New York is all across the country. And the attitude, the ideological attitude, that somehow criminals, whatever their skin, but I guess mostly black and brown, mostly black, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. But somehow, our job as citizens and then elected leaders and police and judges and juries and public health and first responders and all the rest of it, all the people that give themselves, give of themselves in service, public officials and so forth, that somehow protecting criminals has become more important than protecting the citizens. It's a remarkable, remarkable story, and it must be changed before we lose everything here in New York and before we lose our country, before we lose our whole country. So let me pause, and somewhere in the middle of the city of New York is my great and dear friend, Curtis Sliwa, who I'm told today is doubling as a weatherman. So, Curtis Love, where are you and what's happening out there? No, I'm in Midtown Manhattan, Larry, and I'm uh, checking up on all the snow plows. I've seen none from the city going through, but, boy, there are carcasses of the private snow plows that are broken down because we haven't had a snow like this in a while, so they, they haven't been used to uh, moving the snow. Uh, right now, the snow is not frozen solid, but, you know, the temperatures are going to go down. So I'm hoping 
the city sanitation department will get some snow plows in here and some uh, some salt real soon, or else this is going to turn into one uh, one ice pond here. Curtis, have you called them up and complained as a citizen? Uh, no, I think they're overwhelmed at this point. Uh, I know they're prepared. I saw the crews out there much earlier in the day. Uh, so we'll give them a chance. Uh, the problem is going to take place once the snow stops at about 2 or 3, and hopefully they've got a plan, the sanitation department, to send uh, uh, whole uh, crews of uh, trucks, you know, back-to-back, belly-to-belly, with their plows down on the ground before this turns to ice. All right. I hope you're dressed properly. Be safe out there. We'll talk to you later on as the show proceeds. You got it, Larry. All right. Um, I think now, can I bring in my guest, Michael Goodwin? Is Michael, you have him? You're getting him on now. All right. You should have had him on while we're, while we're talking with Curtis. But uh, we'll talk some more about this uh, terrible crime wave. I mean, look, folks. One, look, I'm an economics guy, principally, and um, coming back to the crime story, uh, crime and the economy go hand in hand. Uh, I remember years and years and years ago when Rudy first started running for mayor, my pal Rudy Giuliani, with whom I served in the Reagan administration a long time ago and then helped him run for mayor in uh, 89 and then successfully in 93 and he's been a friend ever since and we both uh, helped Donald Trump of course uh, when you clean up crime when you make the city streets and schools and businesses safe it has a has a profoundly positive economic impact uh, public safety is like a tax cut okay it incentivizes people not only to live here and raise their families here, but to open businesses here. Crime causes people to shut down businesses. That's like a tax hike. Safety gets people back here, opening stores, buildings, going to work. That's like a huge tax cut to spur the economy. So there's the economic angle as well. Now I'm told we have Michael Goodwin, my friend, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us today. We're a, a bit disjointed. We're all sort of weathermen uh, with Curtis Lewa <laughs> on the streets. I don't know. Uh, your weather skills are probably about as good as mine. But... Yeah, right. <laughs> and, my, and my snow shoveling skills are not even that good. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, let me uh, just begin um, – can you tell us anything about this meeting between uh, Governor Hochul and this renegade DA, Alvin Bragg? Uh, her statement, uh, safety and justice must go hand in hand, was so vacuous, Michael. I, I didn't know what to make of it, and I thought maybe you knew something with your intelligence on the ground or had some thoughts of your own. No, Larry, um, I think that's you're right. That statement um, is vacuous and it's disappointing because she, I think, raised a sense of expectation when she told the New York Post editorial board, I think Wednesday, that she would meet with him. She talked about, you know, I, I have my powers, which suggested 
not not removing him. I think that would be a radical step at at this early juncture. Uh, I mean, he was elected uh, overwhelmingly so in Manhattan. Uh, just in November. So to remove him in the first month of taking office would be quite quite a radical step, I think. But she does have the other power, which is that essentially she can supersede him in particular cases. She can say, you know, in, in effect, remove him from, from a case and appoint a special prosecutor. I mean, that is one way around it. Now, my guess is that in that meeting, and this is what I've been led to believe, that she basically laid it out in that way. Look, I don't want to, rem- you know, I don't want to remove you, um, but I can't tolerate this either. And so they've got to have a meeting of the minds. I suspect that that's what she was trying to achieve, and so that statement was vacuous probably is a face-saving gesture to both of them. Now, that's an optimistic view. A mm. pessimistic view is that she can't make up her mind. And, and the reason for that is, apart from the fact that she's a new governor herself, only in office five months, succeeding in the disgraced Andrew Cuomo. We must always say disgraced before we say Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> yes. uh, it's a rule. Uh, but... Uh, she, I think, is still looking uh, to, to get her feet under her, and she's up for election already. I mean, she's got a June primary, and uh, I'll just say quickly, her concern is that from the left, the far left, the New York City public advocate, a man named Jumani Williams, uh, will will be is running against her. He will try to get the. Uh, endorsement of the Working Families Party, the quasi-socialist far-left party that has a ballot line. And if he gets that, he will probably be on the Democratic ballot as well for a primary. So she's, I think she's protecting her left flank with this maneuver of, try, of sort of wanting it both ways with Alvin Bragg, not wanting to force him out but also wanting to give the impression that she's read the riot act to him. That's my guess as to what's going on. Well, it's probably a good guess. I I think that the majority of real New Yorkers, like people who live in the city, but people who live all over the state, because this becomes a statewide issue too. Absolutely. And, um, wanted to see her spank him. I think that's what I know. That's what I want. I wanted to see her give him a spanking, have some backbone. Uh, no reason. No women can spank men. We know that, and uh, I thought that would have been the appropriate time. I mean, Michael Goodwin. At what point do New Yorkers and, and I use the word New Yorkers meaning all, you know, all New Yorkers, not these crazy left wing Marxists who hate New York and hate America, but all New Yorkers. When will they grow tired, sufficiently tired, of being held hostage by these crazy far-left people? Well, just one final thought on on Kathy Hochul on this regard. Um, I think that the the, the far-left has controlled the state legislature in in New York now. Uh, And so Kathy Hochul sided with them in not agreeing to Mayor Adams' request that they change the bail law. 
so she sided with them on that. So I think that's a, a good indication of where the political class, the, the ruling Democratic political class, stands on common sense. They're opposed to common sense. Mm. New York is the only state in America that does not allow a judge to just to consider the dangerousness of the suspect before releasing. So. Every other state, 49 states, and the federal system allows the judge to make that determination as to whether to release a suspect on bail or without bail prior to trial. Uh, New York does not allow that. So that's an indication of how far, far, far out of the mainstream New York is. Now, look, as to your question, Larry, about when do New Yorkers say enough, I am hopeful that this this event with the two police officers being murdered, along with a rash of other crimes, a woman pushed in front of a subway and killed a child, 11-month-old child, wounded in the face by gunfire in a shootout. Uh, I'm hopeful that, and by the way, three other cops were shot and wounded in January. So five cops shot in the first month of Mayor Adams' tenure. Uh, I, I hope that everybody watched yesterday's funeral for uh, Jason Rivera, Officer Jason Rivera. It was one of the most moving things I have ever seen, Uh, particularly uh, the widow, uh, his widow, a young, young woman, 22 or 23 years old, was so powerfully articulate Mm. in her own pain, but also in singling out Alvin Bragg. I mean, and he's in he's in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And when she does this, Larry, the audience erupted. The entire place stood with with a long, long applause. I mean, to see the priests stand and applaud, to see um, all the officers, all the family. I mean, it was quite moving when she said, you know, we're still not safe. The the system is failing us. Even those who are in the service are not safe. And she said, you know, I know you didn't like these laws coming from our new DA. I mean, that is an extraordinary thing in a eulogy at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Mm-hmm. And on my column, I'm writing that this very much reminded me of the 9-11 funerals, mm-hmm. where the police and the fire and the city was shattered at that moment. And those funerals were Rudy Giuliani conducted many of them in St. Patsy. He was brilliant mm. uh, in in talking about these people, but in sort of rallying New Yorkers. And I think something like that happened yesterday in St. Patrick's. You had, I mean, you, you know, all of the stuff that it's the police that are racist. We have a black mayor. We have a black police commissioner. Both of the officers who were killed in this horrendous ambush were Latinos. Uh, what, what's the argument now? What is the racial argument here? Mm. I mean, this is, this is beyond silly at this point to let the far left hold hostage the clear reform movement that is needed to make New York safe again. Larry, you, you know many New Yorkers. They are afraid. Mm. All of us are afraid on the streets, afraid in stores and subways. There's an element of fear in this city that has not been here for more than 20 years, but it's back. This is now Fear City. You bet. I see it. I hear it, Michael. You're exactly right.
and like I say, I've been around the city like you for a long, long time. Uh, this is uh, the worst. The worst psychologically, it's the worst. Criminally, it's the worst. But psychologically, it's the worst. People and 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 you know what? People's patience with New York is wearing out. You know, you, this is enough is enough. Um, I, I was in Washington yesterday. Uh, I was down speaking to the Republican Governors Association, but I watched, you know, on uh, on the internet. I watched the uh, widow's speech. Uh, you're exactly right. It was a remarkable speech, mo- moving speech, but a very penetrating speech. I also watched the, um, the new police commissioner's speech uh, when she posthumously awarded uh, Rivera, uh, 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 promoted him to detective. I thought that was an incredible thing for her to do, a wonderful thing for her to do, brought everybody to their feet. But, Michael... The other thing enough is enough is the thousands of cops, the blue line on Fifth Avenue, thousands uh, of the cops. Yes, yes. Now, first of all, that did my heart good. But second of all, I believe clearly that the blue line was making a statement. They were making a statement. Enough is enough. Look, uh, they are all that stands between us and anarchy. Yes. There's, there's just no other f- fact about yes. it that they are they are what what keeps us going and you know Larry the what Rudy Giuliani started what Michael Bloomberg continued for those 20 years of their mayoralties uh, it it made New York the safest big city in America mm-hmm. I mean it is because of that that the tourists came that every year was a new tourist record, that investment in the city, that that people wanted to come and work in New York City and live in New York City. I mean, I'll just tell you a quick story. Prior to that, in, in say, the late 80s and early 90s, I was teaching at the Columbia University Journalism School, and there I learned that Columbia University, in order to get uh, applicants to its medical school and to many of its other professional schools needed to give full scholarships because of the crime situation in New York City. Nobody else would come. Mm. They would mm. not come unless the university gave them full scholarship. Mm. Now, that that's the kind of uh, downstream effects that crime has. I mean, businesses don't open. We don't know that. We don't know what businesses didn't open. They just don't open. Uh, But when you see a turnaround, when people feel safe, whether it's a simple thing like painting your house or putting a flower out or or or, uh, you know, getting to know your neighbors, these are investments. Opening a business, shopping on on your neighborhood because you feel safe. These are all investments because you trust the safety factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, without it, none of those things happen. There's, you know, you, you know, totally. That's why I've said uh, in my own economic way, you know, crime is a tax hike. Safety is a tax cut. Crime kills the economy. Safety blossoms the economy. That's a part of this story. And yes, we're I, I, on... I'll give you I'll give you a line that I heard many years ago from the late John Lewis, the Georgia mm-hmm. congressman, mm-hmm. who said, we all know that crime, that, that poverty causes crime. He said, but it's also true that crime causes poverty. Yes. Yes, that's terrific. Terrific. Michael Goodwin, I got to 
make room for our pal Greg Kelly to talk some more about all this. Uh, thanks for giving us some time. I look forward to your column tomorrow, as always. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Larry. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Folks, we're going to take a very quick break. And on the other side, we've got Greg Kelly, uh, who will talk some more about this. This is a New York story, but this is a national story. This is an American story. If we don't solve it here, we will not solve it across the country. And we have got to take our city and our country back. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Radio.com. You can live stream us. We are now moving into syndication. So we'll run through across the country. We always have around the world and even the solar system. We bring in my pal Greg Kelly, host of Greg Kelly Reports on Newsmax TV. It is their premier show, and he is a premier broadcaster. He's also radio host of the Greg Kelly Show right here on WABC Radio. And Greg is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps Reserve. Greg, thanks for helping us uh, this morning. I appreciate it, buddy. Oh, so much. Uh, so good to be with you, Larry. And I, I hope you're, uh, you mentioned something. All the cops showing up at that funeral, I do yeah. think it was in response you know, it's all the, the fake news, the false narrative that cops are the problem. There's a lot of frustration out there. And that was just a overwhelming. It was sad, but it was also beautiful at the same time to see all those officers. You know, Greg, uh, when I watched, I was watching it on TV. I was down in D.C. yesterday, but I was watching it on TV. It really sent a shiver down my uh, back. I mean, it was a phenomenal show of strength. And they're clearly making a statement. And I look, I, I don't know the new police commissioner. Uh, you're the son of New York, one of New York City's greatest police commissioners. But um, I, I, I really was impressed by her speech and posthumously uh, uh, giving uh, Rivera, young Rivera, uh, making him into a detective. I, I thought that was a terrific thing. It's like taking matters into their own hands. That's good. I like that. But, um, Greg, the question I have for you from a police angle is, are we putting more cops on the street? Now, I know Eric Adams just became mayor, and I'm rooting for Eric Adams, and I supported him strongly. I I met with him for an hour. I'm in touch with his people constantly. Uh, So I'm rooting for him. But are there more uh, cops on the street, as as you can see? Uh, Are there more cops in the subway stations? Are they going to get these uh, plainclothesmen back on the street? Is there is there any changes happening that would give us a little bit of hope, uh, uh, Greg? Uh, I hate to be a pessimist, but no. Yeah, uh, we have thousands fewer cops. There are somewhere between five and six thousand. They're very uh, careful with these numbers. They don't release them, but we are down significantly from 2018. Uh, you know, the summer of 2020 and into 2021, Black Lives Matter summer, that didn't make cops feel particularly good. And a lot of cops who could retire did, thousands of them. Replacing them is not happening. People don't want to join the police department. Thanks to the fake news, this is uh, not something that uh, looks like it's a... Uh, uh, a nice line of work or an interest. I mean, we have demonized cops. So, and as for Adams and, uh, and, and the commissioner, I, uh, I'm sorry, but, uh, they have said the right things on occasion. Remember Eric Adams made his career bashing police. He did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's kind of coming home to roost. Uh, Adams does not have the administrative ability to do the things he's talking about. He went through his 16-page plan, which probably could have been written in two pages. It was mostly filler and 
you know, big margins and large type. Um, it's a great deal of nothing, summer jobs programs, that kind of thing. And just one more thing. You mentioned the anti-crime unit. He wants to bring it back. Curiously, or actually, uh, as worse than <laughs> insanely, he wants to do that with them wearing uniforms. The whole essence of oh. anti-crime is undercover. Yes, they want to be identifiable oh. to the public. This is a this is a crazy compromise with the left. So we'll have anti-crime. They'll be wearing ordinary clothes, but you'll be able to identify them as cops. So they're wearing NYPD hats. It's it's really kind of it, it, it's it's beyond amateurish. It's it's childish. Some of the things they're talking about right now. It's kind of self-defeating. I thought the whole purpose was to move about anonymously to then well, strike and be more effective. You get points, though, because people who, you know, a lot of folks in the media say, oh, OK, Eric Adams is bringing back the anti-crime unit. That's great. Then you look at the details because he has to take care of his base. And they'll say also, and I'll try to obscure this, but it's true. You can you can look it up. He actually said it the other day when he uh, when he spoke um, uh, that uh, special uh, announcement. He said that they will be identifiable as police officers, identifiable as police officers, and they'll be wearing body cams. So he's trying to be all things to all people. And that's why we can support the mayor. But I think we have to apply a great deal of pressure right uh, on him and on his commissioner i mean we don't have you know, larry you're there we got bob goodwin uh we got a handful of people who are willing and have the ability to talk about this stuff wow i guess the music is playing i wanted to spend some more time with you can you hang out for it and i catch you on the other side of the break you got a couple minutes be my pleasure larry thank you oh good we're going to keep you greg kelly and uh, this is such an important topic so, folks, uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stay right here. We've got a couple of commercials to run through. And uh, my great friend Greg Kelly is going to come back. We'll talk some more about policing. Policing. Look, I, Eric Adams, what are you waiting for, buddy? Go. Just go. To the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome. We are talking about the New York City crime story. It's a tragic story. It's a horrible story. It's a deteriorating story. And as I've said before, we're a national radio show, but this is not just a New York City story. This is a national story on crime and why it is that the people running this country in Washington, D.C., and in all the big cities across the country, are more concerned about the rights of criminals than they are of victims, police, or just ordinary folks. And uh, we have gotten ourselves into one gigantic mess. Our guest is Greg Greg Kelly, host of the Greg Kelly Reports uh, show, uh, Newsmax Television, and, of course, radio host of the Greg Kelly Show right here on WABC Radio. Greg, um, thank you for sticking around for a few more moments. What uh, Joe Biden's coming to town, and uh, what is he going to do and say? I mean, Joe Biden is, is, if anything, a very key part of the problem 
with all of his statements during the campaign in 2020 and uh, this year on 2021. He's the most racially divisive president I've ever seen. He does not stick up for the cops. He tries to backtrack and be all things to all people, but it's a complete abject failure. So he's coming to town. What's that going to be like? Uh, it's uh, the blind leading the blind. It, 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 it's uh, all optics. It's all for show. It means nothing at all. Joe Biden knows nothing about law enforcement. Just the other day, he said that cops should not respond to uh, people who uh, climb buildings and want to jump off to commit suicide. Uh, you should have social workers and, and psychologists. Joe has such a ridiculous and simple worldview. He thinks cops are going to show up and start blasting he didn't uh, think it through. You know, why do you send cops? Why do you send emergency services unit to the top of a building? Sometimes those guys change their mind, and then they got to get back inside somehow. You got to climb down the Brooklyn Bridge. Sometimes those guys change their mind, and they try to take somebody with them. So you need uh, skilled, trained emergency personnel from the police department and the fire department to handle these kinds of situations. So it's just nonsense. And, you know, you made me think, though, of uh, Barack Obama. There are some roots that are very interesting nationally to what's going on here. Still looking at this, but uh, there's a theory that in 2011, and this is actually true, uh, there's data to back this up, uh, Barack Obama was not doing well with African-American voters. He, his, it was taking a hit. His support was taking a hit. Polling suggested that he was losing support. Mm. They thought Many thought if he were elected, everything would change. Well, it didn't change. So right around 2010, 2011, they were looking for a case to emotionalize racial issues, and they found Trayvon Martin in Manhattan, uh, in Florida. That gave rise to Black Lives Matter. This whole outrage, fake news about the police being the problem driven by uh, Black Lives Matter with a great big assist from the political left hmm. – because they were afraid of losing support among African-American voters, which they were. This was a way to get them back. You know, we've always had, unfortunately, people have we've had police get shot since police were invented. Police have been shooting people. It's a, it's a fact of life. But suddenly, as violence is going down nationally, as police are using their weapons less and less nationally, this becomes such a burning issue, and not just in 2020. It started in 2014. There's a real, I think, sinister political backdrop to all this, to demonize cops mm. and to emotionalize the left, to, uh, to rev them up, say that this is part of the problem, and it really feeds the, 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 left, the left prejudice that's always existed about cops. You know, Trump— Trump in 2016, Trump ran on law and order. I mean, it was one of the big things that helped push him uh, to victory against Hillary Clinton. And um, we didn't have all this stuff under Trump until I guess we started with, you know, in major ways in 2020 during the pandemic when chaos ruled. But I think, you know, politically, Greg, the country is revolting against this. Now, we're not getting it yet in New York. Maybe we are a little bit. I mean, Eric Adams made some important statements during the campaign. We don't know that he's going to follow through. I, I get that. That's your point. And it's a good point. It's an important point. We need to keep the pressure on, no question. But um, the idea of defunding the police, 
or you know, ending police departments, some of these crazy things in Seattle, Washington, and Portland, Oregon, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. I mean, I think that's losing ground. I just, some of that you saw in the Glenn Youngkin campaign for governor of Virginia when the Republicans took back that state, which had been you know drifting towards the left. And I think I just have to believe, Greg, here in New York City and state, people. I mean people, like real people, ordinary people, not these crazy people on the far left who hate New York and hate America, but ordinary citizens are going to revolt, and we're going to see it in the ballot box. Oh, I think that's right. I think that's why we're going to see a huge change in the midterms. Um, the, in a way, this has already left the station. You know, the, you can't suddenly, the, the left is not going to be pro-cop overnight. Neither is the mainstream media. They're too far invested in Black Lives Matter and, and, and racial equity and, and all this stuff that normal people of all races really don't concern themselves with uh, all that much. I don't see that changing. Uh, it's, it's, it's now part of their identity, mainstream media, the left. They're kind of stuck, uh, but the people get it. Once again, the people always get it. Yeah, I mean, that's so important. Um, huh. I don't know, you know, come back to Eric Adams for a moment. So he's our brand new mayor with a lot of goodwill. And um, as you say, he's not delivered yet, but he's, you know, he wants to get rid of the no bail law. So that's something. I think he wants to put more cops on the street. But as you say, the, the ranks are so badly depleted. But, you know, now's the now's the time, isn't it, Greg? The first few months... Now's the time for him to make his mark, to show his backbone, and to be, you know, tough, pro-cop. I mean, you can't have – it's just not sustainable for a long period of time, it seems to me, that the country will actually believe that cops are the problem, not criminals. I just don't believe that. I mean, it just defies common sense. Cops are the solution. (laughs) <laughs> and and that the politics of the far left, I think we're going to whoop them, Greg. I don't know when, maybe the midterms, but I, I just think they. what's happened even yesterday with thousands of cops on Fifth Avenue, I, I, I somehow I want to try and find a wee bit of optimism in this story. Well, look at how low our standards are. I mean, we're 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 celebrating a mayor who says that, uh, you know, the cops are the good guys and criminals are the bad guys. That really should be a starting point. Um, if you go through his career, he he did not have much of one in the police department. Now, look at somebody like Rudy Giuliani. Now, Rudy could do the public uh, support of the cops, but he also had some very compelling, interesting ideas. And he was an administrator. He was detail-oriented. All Eric Adams has is... That speech, <laughs> you know, all yeah. he has yeah. are some nice suits. So I'm not impressed. But one thing about the public, you know, I do think they're on our side, but too often, and you've seen it, you've seen it, you've seen it a million times. People, when they see cops arresting somebody or involved in something, people take out their cell phones. They don't mm. try to help the cop or say that, oh, we went that way, officer. They try to catch the cop making a mistake. Mm. Uh, too many people in the public think it's an opportunity to go viral. So optimistically though these things are always cyclical 
And things are so bad right now that uh, we might be on the verge of a, of, a, of a Rudy Giuliani. I hate to say it, though. I don't think it's Eric Adams. Mm. Even if his heart is in the right place, and I have my doubts, he simply does not have the, uh, the ability, and quite frankly, the intellect to make mm. this happen. Well, you and I <laughs> and John Katsimatidis and some of our pals, we will take your advice, Greg. We've got to keep the pressure on. Keep the pressure on because you know what? We know the difference between right and wrong. Part of the problem in this country is people have forgotten the difference between right and wrong. It's that basic. Anyway, Greg Kelly, thank you for this morning. We appreciate it very, very much. Talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. I want to get back to the U.S. economy, which is decidedly a mixed bag. Tell you the truth, Joe Biden would be better off in 2021 not doing anything. And uh, the good news is we are saving America by killing the bill. No more social spending, no more huge tax hikes, no more regulatory state uh, to uh, control the economy like a socialist country. We're going to talk with um, former Council of Economic Advisors Chairman, my pal Tom Phillipson, in just a moment after a few breaks. Please stay right here. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. And now I'm going to switch over to one of my favorite weather women. Oh, wait a minute. Weatherman Frank Marino. The rumor is he's in Staten Island heading out into the ocean. Frank, what's uh, well, going thank, on, bud? Uh, thank you, Larry. Gender is such a fluid thing these days anyway. It really is. It really is. You sound great. It's great to talk with you again. Uh, things on Staten Island are pretty chilly. Now, I mean, we've all been through a snowstorm before, but uh, this is our first major snowstorm of the year. And what a way to kick things off. Uh, at the rate, uh, the snow is coming down and falling faster than the Dow Jones after the Fed announces a, ra- a rate hike. So it is it is tough. Uh, at least six inches have fallen so far. It's tough to know exactly because there are a lot of snow drifts. Uh, the road conditions are very treacherous. Most of the primary roads, all of the primary roads have been plowed at least once. Most of the secondary roads have as well. If people want to know if their street has been plowed or not, they can log on to uh, nyc.gov uh, slash plow nyc. And that's not just for Staten Island. That's for all five boroughs. Uh, the worst of it, is supposed to be for the next hour. So people are contemplating going out. Maybe they need to make a grocery store run because we know D'Agostino's and Gristiti's are both open. Uh, they should wait until uh, at least the next hour. Or so the snow is going to continue falling until about 4 o'clock. But in general, uh, people should do whatever they can to stay off the roads. It's, uh, it's pretty treacherous out there. Frank Murano convincing us that no one can predict the weather or the stock market. Thank you, Frank. Or gender. (laughs) All right. This is Larry Kudlow. We're going to continue the show. Uh, We've got um, distinguished economist Tomas Phillipson. He is a former acting chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration, and he is presently a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Uh, Tomas, welcome back. Good to hear from you. Good to be with you, Larry. All right. So... um, you may or may not have read the Wall Street Journal editorial yesterday, the economy that might have been. 
growth would be healthier if Biden had done nothing in 2021. Now, it's a funny story. It's an odd story because we had a good GDP number uh, for the fourth quarter, 6.9%. And for the year, fourth over fourth was 5.5%. But, 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 but the inflation rate continues to surge. And yesterday we got an update on the inflation with the Fed's favorite measure, the uh, personal consumption deflator, uh, which is up uh, 7.1% for the past three months and 5.8% for the year. So it's called 6%. And the CPI, of course, is running at 7 So, Tomas, why couldn't we have had strong growth with low inflation? That's my question. Yeah, I think that's uh, a very, very good question. I think we could have had it, certainly. I, I feel like, uh, you know, what the Biden administration is doing is essentially putting gasoline on a burning house and then claiming victory when it's raining outside and the fire is gone, essentially, the, the rain being the private sector. So, I mean, the, the, the inflation uh, that we see, I think, is a completely policy-induced. This is policy-induced in, on, on a, through a triple threat, is usually my argument. One is uh, the demand side has been stimulated. It was the first recession ever where disposable income rose in a recession. That's never happened before because of all this excessive uh, fiscal policies. The second, that certainly drives off prices. Uh, the second component, obviously, is the Fed accommodating it with a, a huge growth in money supply. But the third one is the supply cuts, naturally, and uh, not only energy, but also that the main competitor really for most small businesses was, in terms of retaining the labor, was not other businesses, but the main competitor was the government, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you see that in the employment cost uh, numbers that have been coming out in the last few months, the last one last uh, yesterday, where, you know, you have, to, you have to compete with what was essentially a 7 to $15 an hour increase in wages for sitting home. And that's why, you know, all the small guys have to compete to get their low-skilled labor in uh, to compete with that wage that the government uh, handed out in 2021. Uh, Tom Phillipson, we're still uh, paying people not to work. And it just seems to me this is a very big problem. Now, maybe we're beating it back, right? We're saving America and killing the bill. But, you know, people like Senator Joe Manchin have said repeatedly that these uh, welfare programs and entitlement programs uh, do not have work requirements. There's no work fair. So although the unemployment benefits have eased back down, all these other entitlements are popping up. First of all, they're still on the books. Second of all, Democrats want to make it permanent without work fair. I mean, to me, that's a big issue right there. Yeah, and you see that translate into inflation, right? Because the companies have to compete with these benefits, therefore have to raise wages, which gets pushed on into prices, obviously. About 70% of, of costs of companies are labor costs. So you've seen that in every sector, essentially, where you have to get workers at higher wages because of these government benefits. But it's also hurting the policies that the administration is claiming victory on. They've been... I don't know if you saw on this. They've been shouting a lot about that. They cut child poverty in half, and that's one yeah. of their main successes. But that's essentially through the 
uh, child tax credit, which raised nominal incomes of those families by about 7%. At the same time, inflation was, was hitting them with 70, 7%. So that the claims kind of the claims coming out of the White House in that sphere in terms of child poverty has been completely erased by the inflation they created through their policy. And there's no work requirements in that, is there? Child allowances? <laughs> no, child, uh, no, it was extended without without any work requirements as well. But uh, you, <laughs> you know, it wasn't extended further into 2022. Right, so far, but they're still fighting for that in the uh, so-called right. Build Back Better. But didn't your analysis or yours or Casey Mulligan's uh, or somebody out in Chicago said basically if if they run through this $3,600, no work requirements, um, we're going to lose a lot of jobs, like a million and a half people will leave the workforce. Yeah, that was Bruce Meyer, who's a very a well-known, recognized expert on these kind of programs at Chicago. And he's been fighting with a bunch of, not fighting, but he's been arguing differently than a bunch of sociologists who, in the beginning of 2021, created this claim that child poverty was cut in half. And that was a forecast that took place in 2021, but it never materialized and then biden ran with the message even though it didn't materialize materialize all right we'll leave it there thomas philipson sorry we're running short uh thanks very much for helping us out we'll talk soon i'm larry kudlow folks this is the larry kudlow show we will be right back after these messages Rudy Giuliani here for Monetary Gold. Financial fallout from COVID-19 is about to hit home. To pay for mountains and federal aid, the government has printed massive amounts of money, dramatically weakening the United States dollar. According to some of the brightest minds on Wall Street, your money is about to hit a wall. That means inflation, reduced purchasing power, and a shrinking portfolio. Mass money printing is a currency killer, and China could not be happier. Call now for a free copy of The Dollar's Last Stand. Learn about debt cycles, hyperinflation, and the dollar's expiration date. Yes, there is one. Most importantly, see if you qualify to trade your dollars for gold. With an instant $5,000 gold credit, call 1-888-204-2141. The Chinese virus has crushed the American dollar. Please don't let it crush you. The world's largest hedge fund says diversify now. Please, 1-888-204-2141 for a free copy of The Dollar's Last Stand. And see if you qualify to trade your paper bucks for solid gold with an instant $5,000 gold credit prosperity starts here now here's larry kudlow all right welcome back i'm larry kudlow we're going to do a little more weather reporting i don't know if it's a weather man or a weather woman or a weather what but sid rosenberg is out there and he takes no flack from anybody sid can you beat back this storm <laughs> i am beating back the storm larry first of all good morning how are you friend haven't seen you since my beautiful wife, Danielle, and I sat next to you, your lovely wife, at Margot Katsimatidi's birthday party a couple of months ago. But I am beating back the storm. I got up early this morning, and I walked 13 blocks in the storm to 92nd and Broadway to enjoy a morning workout at New York Sports Club. And I just walked 13 blocks back. So I've already walked 26 blocks in this winter wonderland, and it is absolutely a beautiful Saturday morning. Jeez, I'm exhausted just thinking about that. <laughs> you know, I tell you, Larry, there's a reason why me and Danielle lived in Boca Raton for 16 years. I, I used to hate this weather, but it's been such a depressing couple of weeks here. And, of course, yesterday I spent 
time in St. Patrick's Cathedral. I went to the funeral for Officer mm. Rivera yesterday, and mm. I decided this morning that while snow was not my favorite thing, Larry, I was going to get up, I was going to put a hat on, some gloves, and a couple of sweatshirts and a winter jacket and try to enjoy what makes the Northeast so much fun this time of year. And I guess after the week that was so depressing, it's working out this morning. So it's rough out here. It is windy. It is snowy. Uh, the snow is actually blowing sideways as I speak on 103rd and West End Avenue. And there is ice underneath the puffy snow. So you've got to be very, very careful even walking in these conditions. Well, I like the attitude. One foot in front of the other. Make the best of it. And, you know, good for you, Sid. Frank Morano was trying to forecast the stock market. You at least stayed with, you know, your personal workouts. Make it much better. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of weird things going on in the city right now. <laughs> Part of it is brought to you by WABC Radio. <laughs> Sid Rosenberg, try to stay warm. Thanks very much for the report. All, All right, right, folks. Now, you know you're my favorite. Take care. Yeah, you're terrific. Bye-bye. Terrific, 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 terrific. And so is your bride. Um, we're going to get back to business now. We've got uh, Peter Schweitzer, president of the Government Accountability Institute, and he has an important new book out. It's called Red-Handed. How American Elites Get Rich Helping China. This is an incredibly important subject. Uh, Peter, uh, welcome back. Thank you for this. Great to be with you, Larry. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I have not read the book yet, um, but uh, I read carefully uh, your article on and how the big tech elites are helping China achieve global supremacy. Um, I want to start with Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who you know, I, I think is a very duplicitous guy just in general terms. But in all of these cases, Peter, what blows my mind is how these tech people, these are smart people, how they can uh, not understand that their relationships with China are helping the Chinese military, the Chinese Communist Party dictatorship, and why China is not America's friend, but China is America's enemy. How can they not understand that? Well, it's a great question, Larry. Uh, I think part of it is, at least for some of them, uh, money uh, is, is a huge uh, motivating factor. You'd think, you know, a guy like Bill Gates worth $100 million, why, why does he need more money? $100 billion. Um, but I think $100 billion. Yeah, sorry, $100 billion, yes. Um, I mean, why does he need more money? But, yeah, the, the, the point is, is part of the motivation is money. But there's also in the tech space, I think, this sort of um, appreciation for uh, dictatorship. And you find that in their statements. I mean, these guys will make statements about how efficient the Chinese government is. Uh, Guys like Elon Musk talk about how, because it's a dictatorship, it can be more responsive to the needs of the Chinese people. Um, I don't think these are dumb individuals. I think they're, they're technically smart, but I think they also understand the world. But they believe that they can, um, in a sense, overcome that. Uh, so you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg. Um, classic story about Mark Zuckerberg in the book that I think explains kind of how this works. Um, the chief propagandist for the Chinese Communist Party uh, goes and visits Facebook in 2016. Zuckerberg takes him on the tour of the entire uh, headquarters. They go back to Zuckerberg's office. Um, the propagandist sits in Zuckerberg's chair, uh, and he looks over on the table, and he sees a familiar-looking 500-page book. It's familiar because the propagandists helped put it together. It's the collected speeches and statements of uh, President Xi of China. Um, and he picks it up, 
and he, and he goes to Mark Zuckerberg and says, oh, why do you have this here? And Zuckerberg says, well, I'm reading it, and I'm asking all senior management read it, to read it because I want them to understand uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Mm-hmm. Now, is Mark Zuckerberg a communist? No. But there clearly is, I think, a desire to sort of bridge the gap between the messy representative government of the United States and the autocratic regime of China. You know, Peter, I can tell you honestly, straightforwardly, I'm happy to take a lie detector test. I do not have the writings of Xi by my bedtime table. <laughs> okay, I promise you, my friend. <laughs> Prom- but, but, I, <laughs> but I will say this. Um, in the Trump administration, we knocked Huawei out because, yeah. you know, we fought Robert O'Brien, myself, uh, Mnuchin. Look, Trump was the leader. Trump was very, very hawkish on this. And Trump rang the bell about the threat from, from China. But I think um, getting Huawei out, getting them out of 5G, we did get them out of a lot of foreign countries, too. Not everybody, but a lot of them. So there's a, and I think the American public, you know, understands what you're saying here and are very skeptical. What? Uh, let me go into the Google story with artificial intelligence. Artificial AI is a very important, you know, future technology. Uh, <clears throat> make everything faster. Uh, computations become just in exponentially faster, and it's a very important part of the future. Now, I, I don't know whether we're ahead of China or not, but Google is working with China, and um, that's most disturbing. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, President Xi himself has said that whoever controls uh, AI, who becomes the dominant player in AI, will achieve what he calls the commanding heights in the global competition. Um, that's, so that's pretty significant. And the problem is, I think the United States can outcompete anyone, but when you've got Google funding and supporting two research laboratories in China um, that are working on AI that are linked to the Chinese military. When you've got Microsoft doing the same thing at another facility, and when you've got Microsoft actually accepting interns from Mm. the People's Liberation Army, you have a problem. And, And again, I think these tech executives know this. I think they don't care. Uh, I've got a story in the book about how uh, Google and Facebook in 2016 uh, wanted to take this cable, and they wanted to stretch it from Hong Kong under the sea all the way to San Francisco, the Pacific Light Cable. They hire a Chinese contractor who's, of course, linked to the military to set it up, and they go on building this thing. The Trump administration finds out about it. The FBI and the Department of Justice says, wait a minute, you can't do this. This will create quote-unquote, unprecedented opportunities for Chinese espionage. Right. Uh, and, they stop, and they stop the project. Does Facebook and Google not know that? Of course they do. They're, they're, they're smarter technologically than anybody in the FBI. But they proceeded with a project because generally they don't care. They don't see themselves oftentimes as American companies or ne- necessarily even American citizens. Uh, they, are, they are leaders and tech titans of the globe. Um, and they just don't see China as a threat. Yeah, well, I'm proud of Trump for that. I remember that very, very well. And we did put our foot down. You know, we, um, U.S. government has enormous powers for export controls, but also import investments. I mean, we have the 
uh, Committee on Foreign International Investment, CFIUS it's called. Uh, I sat on that committee, I might add, when I was in office. And I think we just have to keep tightening and tightening and tightening these requirements. And I also think we have to tighten further our export controls. Uh, if these techie guys you know, can't do it on their own because they have no common horse sense, then um, the government's going to have to act. This is a matter of great national security. I mean, look at Peter. Um, every Chinese company that people do business with, Americans, is really effectively an instrumentality of the Chinese Communist Party. Every yeah. one of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, whatever they call themselves, the, the Chinese government has a call on everything they do and all the information that they have. That's right. And, and when you look at companies like uh, Tesla, for example, they, of course, uh, have now a major manufacturing facility in China built by the Chinese government. They're going to be shifting their design studios there. When they set up that shop there, Tesla China was required to declare in its corporate documents uh, that its purpose is to serve the interests of the Chinese state. Um, that is what all companies are required to do. And I agree with you on technology. What Beijing wants is they want unfettered access as much as possible to our technology, and they want unfettered access to our capital markets. Um, With those two things, they believe in a competition with us. They are going to win, and I think they probably are. Uh, because they've got some advantages. We have advantages, but we're giving the advantages away. Uh, and listen, President Xi has said his goal is to supplant the United States as the convening superpower in the world, uh, and he wants to use technology, in his words, as a quote-unquote national weapon. Uh, yeah. And we need to wake up. The elites are not going to do it. We need to hold them accountable, and I agree. We need an administration that's going to aggressively adopt an agenda to prevent them uh, from surpassing us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's stopping Chinese investment here and also slapping export controls on our companies to what they can sell to China. You know, Peter Schweitzer, uh, the other point I was thinking about, uh, this is something Robert O'Brien, he was the national security advisor. He and I, we really put the clamps on investing in Chinese companies. Uh, we yeah. stopped the federal retirement thrift system, you know, thrift saving system, whatever it's called, from investing yeah. in Chinese companies um, for two reasons. One was the national security points that you are making. The other one, Peter, is these Chinese companies do not meet our investment standards. In other words, their books are phony, and they don't provide investors with correct information, and they don't invite investors with any backups. They, you know, we have accounting firms that audit them, but they don't really audit them in China because the Chinese don't give them any information. So there's an investor protection angle to this. And by the by, Chinese companies have performed very poorly, I might add. They're lousy investments. Yeah, no, I, I, you're, you're exactly right. And the Trump administration uh, made some great inroads there. It's a problem with investing on these, uh, uh, you know, on on, uh, public markets like the New York Stock Exchange. It's also a problem with private investments. Um, Yes. You know, we've got uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. They invested in a a company called BYD. Uh, One of the things BYD uh, does is develop technologies uh, to uh, help help 
uh, increase the accuracy of Chinese missiles. Um, you know, th- this is a this is a direct example of supporting the military. And I agree with you in terms of transparency. Uh, big financial firms like BlackRock and Blackstone, uh, they are looking the other way. There was a vote in 2017. The Chinese government wanted all companies listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to put in their corporate charter that the Chinese Communist Party had ultimate decision-making authority in the company. They want it formalized in law. Big investment firms like Vanguard said no way. They voted against it. BlackRock voted in favor of it, mm-hmm. saying we don't have a problem with this. And that that is an enormous problem. So we need on Wall Street – Uh, uh, executives to wake up and we need to hold them to account if they're not going to do the right thing. Yes. Amen to all that. Well, another great timely book. The name of the book, folks, is Red Handed, How American Elites Get Rich Helping China, written by the great Peter Schweitzer. Peter, thank you for your time. We will talk much more about this. Be good. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk General Keith Kellogg about this Ukraine-Russia-Biden mess. And that's what it is, a mess. And the Chinese Olympics are coming up next week. It could make it a bigger mess. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Much more to do. Wall Street to the White House. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, during the week, join us on Fox Business Network. 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. And if you somehow can't watch it, get your favorite nine-year-old who will DVR it for you. And you never have to miss a single show. Now, I'm going to bring in my great friend, General Keith Kellogg, retired Army Lieutenant General, former National Security Advisor, Vice President Pence, and President Trump. And he is the America First Policy Institute co-chair of the Center for American Security. His recent book, War by Other Means, a general in the White House. A good general in the White House taught me a lot. Keith Kellogg, welcome back. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me on this wonderful Saturday. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I have no idea what's going on now. I've covered the Russian-Ukraine-Putin-Biden story for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, reading it writing it, interviewing you and many others. Uh, Robert O'Brien, our former national security advisor, uh, what did he say? He said, uh, so Anthony Blinken finished his homework paper for Vladimir Putin and told us what our positions are. Uh, Do you have any idea what that homework paper said? And do you have any idea what's going to happen next in this drama? Yeah, Larry, you know, this is really, it's absolutely fascinating if you're a national security guy and like to look at it. Let me kind of give you a little bit of a different take. Uh, you know, up front, everybody recognizes Ukraine's a sovereign nation in Europe um, with inviolate borders. But this is a European problem to fix, and they have failed. And what I mean by that is ever since 2015, when Russia seized parts of eastern Ukraine, there have been peace negotiations using what's called the Normandy format. That's because Normandy is where they first met, and that was the U- Ukraine, the Germans, uh, the French, and, and the Russians. And after six years, they've gotten no resolution. And all of a sudden, you see the, the uh, Russians starting to load up militarily significantly uh, around Ukraine, especially on the eastern part. And it looks like Putin's going to take 
these these negotiations to the fiscal force. All of a sudden, NATO says, oh, no, this is dangerous to NATO. Well, where's NATO been really in the last six years? Where have we been? We haven't been involved in this at all. This has been strictly an European uh, issue. So the Russians took this advantage of this, which I think you know, was a mistake on our part to get this closely involved with it, and they gave us a list of demands. One of those demands, were some, you know, some of them were really bad, but one we just wouldn't accept, and that was Ukraine would never become part of NATO. Well, look, that's almost that's a red line for the Russians. And the Russians are, what the Russians are doing is they're going to make us look bad. They're going to make the Europeans look bad because I think they're postured right now to do something militarily in the near term. Because you know, honestly, Putin can't sit where he's at right now with that many forces on the ground. Most of them. Uh, have come from the eastern part of Russia, the real high-end units. And he can't just keep sitting there and talking, talking, talking. If he can't give a resolution, I think he's going to take a limited incursion. Oh, by the way, a guy named Joe Biden gave him the green light to do that when in the press conference. He said, well, if it's a limited incursion, you know, we'll have to talk about it. That, mm. I, that's the biggest green light I've ever seen. So I think in the near term, I think Putin is going to keep talking about it. But if those, those talks fail, which they will, He'll take some type of military action. He'll resolve this on his own. And then we've got another set of bad problems. And and here we go with Joe Biden making some bad mistakes, bad errors, forced errors. And we've got now a national security issue in Europe. And Keith Kellogg, also, as you know, um, Putin has moved troops into Belarus. And when you look at the map, um, those troops on the border are very near Kiev. So they're surrounded now, the north, the east, and even, uh, Keith, the southeast. They've moved some troops uh, towards that Crimean area where they're talking about building a bridge or started building a bridge or some darn thing. Um, The idea of a false flag narrative uh, could be used. I mean, he's got – he doesn't have to have a massive invasion – he can put in mercenary troops. I don't know whether they even have Russian army uniforms or not, but use that as an excuse then um, to take steps. And I wondered also, I mean, I don't want to get too far flung, but, you know, they might want to overturn the Zelensky government altogether. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Larry, because Poroshenko, the, the guy before Zelensky, is back in Ukraine right now. And when you look at the forces that he's right, he put in Belarus, you know, they're, they're only 60 miles from Kiev, right. just. And that's sort of like a fixing force. You put pressure on the northern part so he can't move his forces around. And you're right about uh, around the, uh, the forces he's got arrayed. And most of them are right around uh, the Donbass eastern part of Ukraine. Look, I could give you a scenario where he says, I'm going to take offensive action. The Dnieper River divides the eastern part of Ukraine, the eastern one-third, which is predominantly Russian-speaking. The rest of the country isn't. And he could say, I'm just going to take that big hunk out of there. And, and and secure that from Mother Russia, because he does perceive it as a threat. He'll use any excuse in the world to do it. Um, mm. He's already got Xi on his side, President Xi of China, who's kind of said, oh, I kind of agree with you. Yeah, uh, Keith, Keith uh, can you get can, can you wait a few minutes and, and stay with us from the other side of the break? Sure. I need you. I want to talk about this China connection and the Olympic Games. We're running behind. All right, General Keith Kellogg's going to come back with us. We're going to take some commercial breaks, and then we'll go back to this story with General Kellogg, and then we're going to get to some stock market work even after that. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stay with us. Lots more cooking on this show. 
Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We are going to resume our conversation with General Keith Kellogg, a retired Army Lieutenant General and former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence and President Trump. I might add, Keith has a new book out called War by Other Means, a general in the White House. One click on Amazon and you can get it. Uh, Keith, you're nice enough to stay with us. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy day. I'm, I'm doing... I'm doing crime in New York, and I'm doing snowstorms in New York, and we're a little bit out of order, but you're a trooper, and I appreciate it. You know, just towards the end, you were talking about, you mentioned China and Xi. Yeah. So um, I'm reading that, um, I think in the next week, Putin is getting together with Xi, he's meeting with Xi, and I just want to say, we've got the Chinese Winter Olympics that begins uh, this coming week. There's a history here, as you know, going back, I think it was 2008, during the Olympics, and that's when Russia went into Georgia, if I have that story right. I'm just very worried that um, some very bad things could potentially happen uh, in the next week or 10 days as these confluence of events. And, of course, Putin and Xi are not American friends and allies. They are not. Yeah, and I think you're right, Larry. I think this is going to be a critical week. I think, uh, you know, they keep talking about dialogue, and I know there's going to be a Security Council meeting this Monday uh, involving Ukraine and discussion with Russia, but he's just delaying it and talking, talking. He's allied himself very well with Xi, and Xi supports him as well. You know, here's the thing that concerns me when you look at the Chinese. You know, it goes back to 1940. There was a thing called the Tripartite Pact. When you had the Germans, the Japanese, and the Italians, you know, that didn't end up very, very well. But think of the, the Russians teaming up with the Chinese and then the Iranians mm. as well of the police going forward. And you can have some real interesting dynamics in the, in the near term when it comes to national security. Remember, the, the Chinese have just established a port or are establishing a port in Equatorial Guinea. And can you imagine, let's say, three years from now, you've got Russian and Chinese fleets floating off the uh, east coast of the United States, that could, that could actually happen. Oh, by the way, and then you throw in that third group, uh, Iran, uh, by that time, in all probability, we'll have a nuclear uh, capability. Uh, you know, it's kind of scary when you think about it. And I think he's leveraging the heck out of it, everything he's got, meaning Putin. And he's looking at, at Joe Biden, and he's looking at, and to use a Texas term, he's looking at somebody that's it's all hat and no cattle. Mm. And, I, and, and when you look at Joe Biden's history, he's not a strong, dynamic leader, and Putin knows that, and he's going to use it to his advantage. And I think the closest thing you're going to see is some type of action in Ukraine, probably with uh, by the end of February for sure. And it blows my mind, speaking of Iran, that the United States government arranged for South Korea to transfer funds to Iran to pay their U.N. dues? Huh? Really? We have to have Iran in the U.N., so what, we can make a deal with Iran in the United Nations, thereby bypassing all of Congress? I mean, what's that all about? Yeah, you know, Larry, we, you know, remember, people think when they talk about the Iranian deal, that was not, that's not a treaty. That was a deal. Yep. There was no Senate to do that, and that was kind of uh, the Obama administration putting something together uh, with, with Wendy Sherman and Brad, Rob Malloy working that, and, and we're back to it again. You know, that's kind of gone off the front pages, but that hasn't gone anywhere either. And and all of a sudden, you watch that thing, 
blow up in everybody's faces when when they do a, a breakout. And a breakout defined as having enough enriched uranium to create and develop uh, a nuclear weapon. And you're gonna, that's going to happen in the near term well. I mean, there's a lot of problems out there, and we're just kind of – the Biden administration is kind of whistling past the graveyard. And I think it's going to pay uh, – Hey, look, it's going to hurt us long term. Uh, General Keith Kellogg, you're wonderful, sir. I appreciate it. And thank you for your wisdom and thank you for staying over. We'll talk soon. All right, folks, uh, we're going to continue the conversation. I want to do some stock market work. We have two of our favorites, Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. And Jack Berusian, founder and chief economist for UCX and chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. This has got to be fun. So we have a wild and woolly stock market. Finished up, the Dow finished up 460 points. The uh, NASDAQ was about flat. The S&P was up a smidge. But it's been um, pretty volatile, to coin a phrase. And we had a lot of data out today. Um, fellas, one thing that's so interesting to me about the data and it reflects on where the economy is going in the future, is that the, the top-line number for GDP was a strong number, um, 7% for the quarter, uh, 6.9%. But if you look under the hood, if you look beneath the headlines, what you find is uh, consumer spending increasingly soft and business investment spending very soft, and now I'm looking at the Atlanta Fed's GDP now for the first quarter, their forecast, it's zero, all right? They're showing no growth for the first quarter. And in the middle of all this, gentlemen, we have a continuing inflation problem. The GDP deflator was up 7%. The PCE deflator is up 7.1% for the last three months and almost 6% for the last year. So this all we're all over the place. So let me begin with you, Jack Perusian. What is your take in the middle of this? Well, one of the things you didn't say, Larry, is the fact that wages aren't going up nearly as quickly as people thought they were going up. And with inflation going higher, people are making a lot less money than they once thought they were making. So it's really becoming a very convoluted situation. Look, the correction process has begun. All this extreme volatility is usually a precursor to a much bigger move. And we were trying to ignore it. And I think about a month ago, a little over a month ago, I was on your show, and uh, the last question you asked us is whether we're bullish or bearish. One word, mm-hmm. and I said bearish. I said I, reluctantly I was bearish because we were entering that phase where we were going to have the Fed as a headwind. No longer was the Fed going to be there with, with a put in hand, at least if, if they stay the way they are. If they become political uh, you know, and, and things change, everything can change. But, but what we're looking at is, is a correcting process that is beginning. And, and I know you've, been, you know you've been sober a long time, Larry, but those of us that drink know that a hangover doesn't start you know, <laughs> when you're drinking. It starts when you're done drinking, okay? And, they, and they're pulling that punch bowl away. Right? They are going to take the punch bowl away. The only question is how fast. My guess is going to be faster than people think. Interesting. um, Look, wages are rising. I mean, the employment uh, cost index uh, was up. Let's see. Private wages are up 1.2% in the fourth quarter of 21. 
And the 12-month change is 5%. But the other thing that's troubling Jim Urio is after taxes and after inflation, what's called real disposable income, uh, has now fallen three straight months, October, November, and December. Now, that's the inflation factor. And I think that's starting to cut in to consumer spending. And I'm just concerned about the outlook for profits. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. So, you know, we got inflation tax and we have uh, the Fed removing the punch bowl and we have a wild and woolly stock market. So where do you come out on all this, my friend? I'm so confused. That statistic you just gave about wages. Yeah. I mean, I heard that the press conference from President Biden, he never mentioned that. He just no. talked about the wages going up, which was so fascinating to me mm. that he's talking about 3% wages when we're literally, and we say 7% inflation, that's ridiculous. It's, if, they, if we calculate it the way we used to calculate it, it would be over 10% inflation. Yes, they're banking a lot on it being um, part of the supply chain issue being huge. One thing I'll disagree with Jack for. He said there's no more Fed put. I believe there is a Fed put. I just believe the strike price has been lowered. I think that they were perfectly comfortable with the 13% correction in the S&P. I don't think they'd be comfortable with the 20% correction. And one thing I would put as evidence of that is that Neil Cash Carey came out right away and, and said, we may pause rate hikes in the spring. I thought we were beginning rate hikes in the spring. <laughs> and he's already talking about pausing rate hikes in the spring. You can't I'm, listen to him. You cannot listen. I won't allow you to listen to him. I will not, he's, but I the guy's a flake. He's a nice yeah. guy, but he's a complete flake. Right. I know him as well, and he is a nice guy, but I don't understand <laughs> what he's going at. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there is a level that the Fed will flinch at, but I do agree with Jack that it's it's lower than this. I do think it's a 20% put. And again, I think, you know, I want this correction to come. When we talk mm-hmm. about tight labor market, part of it is because of unrealistic and, and enthusiastic projections of what people's stock portfolios are going to do in the future, and I think something needs to correct that. What do you, Jack uh, Bergen, What so what do you say to people now with respect to the stock market? Um you know, you've had some wild swings. Life goes on. Stocks go up. Stocks go down. Corrections come and go. I understand that. But um, it's becoming front page news, which is probably not a good thing. Um, I hate to see people try to outtrade the market. Really, most people just can't do it. Well, you know, I mean, you see it. You see the, the, the I guess, the... The, the the fluff in the market, for lack of a better term. I mean, we see it with all different markets, whether it be crypto. It's all coming out. Uh, and the real question is how much leverage there is underneath the surface. Whenever you start to see these things start to correct, these markets start to correct a little bit, uh, there, there are cracks within the foundation that we have to pay very close attention to. So that's really what I tell investors uh, at this time. This is when you have to be very careful. Uh, I tell people, and, and I know Jim is the exact same way, to watch the 2 to 10 spread uh, right. and watch the dollar. These are things that are key. Um, and they'll tell us, look, if the Fed is no longer in the marketplace and they're telling us they're no longer to be buying bonds in another month or so, well, then, you know, it, it opens up the door for real price discovery for, for the bond vigilantes or for people to find out what the real value of fixed income is. Um, and, and that's really when the Fed's going to have their hands full. Because if they're fighting you know, that battle on the one hand and they become political during midterms on the other, then it's going to create a big war internally. And the market's going to figure that out. Uh, and, and guess what? The market could be bigger than the Fed if it really wants to be. Well, look at uh, – I think you're right about price discovery. By the way, that's a great term. 
what what you're saying to our uninitiated listeners is that the 10-year rate's going up. I mean, I personally think it's going up to 3%. I don't know when. It closed on Friday at just under 180. That's going to damage multiples, Jim Urio. It's got to have a effect. Because I think profits will rise in the aggregate, but they're not going to rise as fast as they did in 2021, will they? Well, there's a couple things that are at play there, too. And one, we, they haven't stopped buying bonds yet, by the way. Talking about uh, stopping by buying bonds is something, but it's not not everything. And other world central banks are continue to buy bonds as well. So if the if the German ten year is hovering around zero, I don't think we're going to shoot to three percent very quickly. But we do. Obviously, there's a everything has to reset its value based on what the safe rate is. So I mean, th- and that's what we're seeing, I guess, isn't it? I mean, that's why we knew that the stock market was priced improperly at 4,800 in the S&P if we knew that rates were going higher. But I, I think that there's going to be a little bit of a ceiling at 2% for a while. So mm-hmm. just to kind of see what happens again, I will reiterate, they're still buying bonds. Can I ask you, though, you know, talking about consumer spending, which is softening quite a bit, um, what are you seeing in your restaurants, in all seriousness? I like to... Get your ground view. I think the what, restaurant what is a saying? great anecdotal view of the economy as one of the reasons I'm really glad I have it. Now, we're in a special situation because we're in Cook County and, you know, in the outskirts of Chicago. So there's still extremely strict um, uh, regulations, COVID restriction regulations, too. And I don't know if you've seen on Open Table that in the Chicago area, Open Table reservations are down approximately 50 percent. Oh, seeing yeah, I've seen Again, carryouts are, are much bigger, too, but that's not where margin is for restaurants. Uh, guys like Rick Bayless, who actually is Chicago's biggest restaurateur, owns like, you know, 30 restaurants in Chicago, is, is calling dramatically for federal support. I mean, of course, he's playing his own hand there. But it, it's weird. You, you know, we the numbers are going down everywhere from the Omicron uh, wave, mm. but nobody has any confidence that our leaders in Illinois and states like that are going to see that and remove the restrictions. I think the, the people think that they're just going to never remove the instru- uh, restrictions and just stop talking about them at some point in time. But uh, it's a tough time for restaurants right now. My restaurant's doing pretty good, but not as good as we would hope to. Yeah, I'm going to be very cynical. The, the far left that's running these blue states kind of likes COVID because it lets them control the whole economy. And they can and, go to the federal government hat in hand for money and get saying, more Look money. What COVID did to our economy. Absolutely. Fellas, can you stick around? I got to take a quick sure. break. Stick around. Jimmy Urio, Jack Brugian, two of the best of the best. I'm Larry Kudlow. We got much more to talk about. Please hang with us. Hang with us. We're coming right back after this break. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, we're talking to Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, and Jack Berusian, founder and chief economist for UCX and chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Gentlemen, thank you very much. A um, couple things. Uh, oil prices now heading back towards $90 a barrel. Nobody's smart enough to know about Putin and uh, Ukraine and Biden, but there's a fair, decent chance they're going to invade the Ukraine one way or another in the next week or two or three, and that the Nord Stream pipeline, which is not yet operating but may be choked off, ending natural gas supplies, uh, Germany and Europe live on Russian 
natural gas. That'll put upward pressure on oil, I guess. Uh, start with you, Jack. Uh, both, Actually, both you guys are commodity experts. Where's oil going, and what's that going to mean? Well, you know, you, you've got not only the, not only is it the natural gas, but you've got about 47 percent of the oil, the, the crude, that comes right through the Ukraine through pipelines directly from Russia into Western Europe. Aside from that, you also have about 22 percent of black sea wheat that is actually exported out of Ukraine right into Western Europe. So we're talking about a lot of markets that are going to get disrupted here in the event that we see, uh, you know, Russia do what, they're, what we're thinking they're going to do. And look, they've, they've got 100,000 troops on three sides. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how can, you, how can you not think that something's going to happen here? And, and we're looking a little weak internationally. I think we all know that, and especially when you listen to what the general said right before us. It, it makes it, you know, even more dire. But, but these are the markets that we have to be very careful and, and we have to watch. And what the, the tell will be will probably be gold. Uh, if we start to see a bid in gold, I don't, I don't trust Bitcoin. I don't think that's the inflation hedge. I don't think that's the safe haven asset. But I do think that gold is. If we start to see a bid in gold, uh, then that's going to be a precursor to some kind of a move by the Russians. Yeah, you know, Jim Uriel, gold hasn't done much, even with the inflation numbers, And, you know, so far the energy threats coming out of Europe and Russia, gold hasn't done much. Are you surprised? Yeah, I am surprised. And I think Mm. there's a couple of reasons for that. And one, remember, at its height, the cryptocurrency market was a $3 trillion market cap. You know, to put that in perspective, gold is only about a a $10 trillion. So if you think that you've taken taken all that speculative dollar hedge money away from gold, then it makes sense that gold underperformed. Um, when crypto got demolished over the last couple of weeks, and gold was actually the only non-correlated asset, it was the thing that kept its bid while the stock and crypto markets were getting hammered. So I do think that that is kind of a signal that gold is back, because you know, crypto was supposed to be this uncorrelated dollar hedge, but then everyone started trading it at, at like growth stocks, so it, it just kind of moves based on a margin uh, margin call with everything else. So I do think gold is coming back. Back to the crude thing, though, too. You know, from 2011, 2014, we basically averaged about $100 crude. I think that is absolutely where we're going back to in crude oil, and part of it is the supply thing. Yeah, Bitcoin, let's see. Bitcoin, 37932 Actually, it was up this past week. Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't but know. It, I took did. A, it, it took a pounding, though, and yeah, I know yeah, that. Yeah. It was at 28000 <laughs> at one point. Yeah, thirty thousand was a, was a low tick, I think. Yeah, but Jack, yeah, I know it's bad when I don't look at my crypto portfolio for a whole week. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jack, uh, the dollar's holding. I mean, the DXY dollar's holding at least. It may mean all currencies are weak, but ninety seven twenty two. That's you know pretty strong dollar. It's a, you know what? King dollar might be back, Larry, especially yeah. if the Fed is going to stick by what they are saying they're going to do. And if that's the case, look, I, you know, I don't want to be in any other currency. I want to be in dollar denominated assets. I want to be in dollars. And, you know, and if we have a Fed that's going to run a course and and if we see three or four rate hikes, look for this dollar to, to continue to go higher over the yeah. course of the next few months. King dollar. King dollar. And the cavalry's coming. Save America. Kill the bill. GOP win big in the midterms. I'd like to be in dollars. I like that trade. On that, yeah, I, think, I, I, think, I, think, I think it's the trade that the international fund managers are looking for, just so you know. Jim Erio, thank you. Jack Perusian, thank you. You guys are the best of the best. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk some money. 
and some politics with Steve Moore and Monica Crowley. Please stick around. We love you. Talk Radio 77. WABC. Cudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. By the way, join us during the week. Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. The name of the show is Cudlow. Lots of fun there and lots of fun here. Let's talk some money and politics. We have Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, an author, political columnist. Steve Moore, Vice President of Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And he has a new book out, GovZilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. Okay. Um, somebody told me Steve Moore has to leave early to prepare for his show. What a terrible excuse that is. I mean, this is the preparation for your show. <laughs> I just need to get up one minute before your show ends. <laughs> and Monica Crowley, thank you for pitching in today. I felt guilty because we didn't give you enough time on TV. So we want to take it. We love Monica. We love It's so Monica. nice to be on with two of my favorite guys. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you say that to all the guys, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to talk a bit about some of the themes in the Republican Governors uh, Association, mm-hmm. the RGA meeting that we were at, um, because very, very interesting stuff. Steve, I'll begin with you. Uh, the theme of federalism. So you've got all these left-wing radical Democrats running Washington, but yep. it's a much different story in the states, particularly the Republican red states. Yep. Um, Biden wants to raise taxes, but the governors are cutting taxes. Biden wants to control the schools and shut them down. Yep. But um, Doug Ducey, for example, the Arizona governor, um, has come up with a tremendous school choice uh, <clears throat> plan. <clears throat> excuse me. If one day of school is closed, uh, he will provide a voucher and school choice which are terrific reforms. And I think, you know, these are very important harbingers of the future. As the cavalry, you know, is on the way and the likelihood of sweeping the midterms for the Republican Party, the states are the laboratories of democracy, Steve, and we may see some very positive policies to replace the socialism in Washington. Yeah, Um, by the way, you did a great job yesterday at the RJ meeting uh, with Governor Stitt and I love the uh, South Carolina McMa- what's yeah. his name? McMaster. McMaster. <laughs> He's terrific. <laughs> he was great. And, and uh, I forget the other. Lee, uh, Lee from Tennessee. And he's fantastic. And by the yeah. way, the, the, the real um, source of talent in the Republican Party is in the governor's mansions. Yeah. He's got, we have at 10 or 12 fantastic, you know, really fantastic governors. And everyone knows about Ron DeSantis, so I'm not going to talk about him. But, you know, Lee's been great in Tennessee. Abbott's great in, uh, in uh, Texas. And you're right. I love what Doug Ducey is doing. Basically, what he's saying is if a school shuts down, a school district shuts down, either for reasons of COVID or teacher strikes or whatever it might be, he, w- he would immediately give vouchers to those parents. So they can go to a school that's open. Now, how can liberals be against that? I mean, we want kids to be educated, right? And so uh, I love that. Uh, we need to get every governor, Republican governor, to do it. Uh, ba- just, I'll just summarize by saying the Republican governors are cutting taxes. They did not shut down their economies like the blue state governors did. They are offering school choice. They are drill, baby, drill. They're doing all of the right things. It's very exciting. That's why, by the way, Biden wants the federal. You're so right, Larry. 
Biden wants to federalize everything so that states don't make these decisions. The federal government does. And the governors say, no, give us the power. We know what's best for Texas or Tennessee or or, uh, you know, whatever state it might be. Yeah, it's a very important trend and deserves a lot more attention, which we will give it is, you know, socialism in Washington. But we have free enterprise capitalism and uh, education reform out in the states and that's how these things change. You know, that's how that you, you change. It'll percolate uh, upwards. But, Monica, I wanted to say, uh, to catch on one point, Steve said that, you know, how can liberals oppose school choice and vouchers? Well, I don't know, Monica. The liberal left radical, I, I mean, I'm thinking teachers unions and critical race theories and white supremacy and divide racially in the classrooms. I mean, I think liberals won't like what Doug Ducey is, is promoting in Arizona. Absolutely not. Remember, we used to say that the states were the laboratories for democracy, because what governors and state legislatures could do at the state level, which is obviously a much smaller level than the national or federal level, that they could sort of experiment policy wise to see what works, what doesn't work. But we've got to understand that we are now dealing with a Democratic Party that is all part of a revolutionary movement. So not all of them are Marxists, but where all of the energy and activism are in the Democratic Party, they are Marxists. So we're dealing with Marxist revolutionaries. And the the, the way that they get the future is through education. It's through grabbing kids when they're young. And when you've got a public school system like we do in the United States, the teachers unions have a stranglehold on not just, you know, the, the teachers and what they're doing, but the, the actual indoctrination of our children. So when Steve talks about, well, how could they be against it? They're obviously against it for their own power and control, but also for power and control over what they're teaching future generations to change the very nature of the country. This is a long-term project. It's been a long-term project for the left for a very long time. Right. And, you know, when you, you talk about or talk to like Generation Z, right, like the kids who are in their 20s, the, the fact that poll after poll of that demographic group shows that they don't have a love of America. They don't have a fundamental understanding or appreciation of American history. And for our basic pillars of freedom, individual freedom, economic liberty, they not only do they not understand it, but they, when they hear about it, they reject it. Yeah. So the yeah. long-term project education-wise is actually bearing fruit for the Marxists well, and the revolutionaries right now. I looked at yesterday when you had, uh, I think it was Governor McMaster of South Carolina, and you brought up the subject with the governors. Larry, by the way, so people understand, was was the host of a panel of of these three great governors. And I love McMaster. He quoted the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Yes, yes. <laughs> Most Americans don't even know. I bet no liberals know what the Ninth and Tenth Amendments are. But I'm going to repeat it because I, I, it's one of my favorite passages of the Constitution. All powers not specifically designated to the federal government uh, reside with the states and the people. Yes, yes. It's so important. By the way, this is a Newt Gingrich thing. And Newt and I have been talking about this. uh, And Newt is advising um, Kevin McCarthy for the House uh, Commitment to America. But this, you know, federalism is really important when you have this left wing 
mm-hmm. governance in Washington. Mike Pence was on uh, Jesse Waters' show on Fox News, and his quote was, Joe Biden won his party's nomination, but Bernie Sanders won the party. And then, I mean, I, yeah. it's a great it's a great line from Mike. And uh, the uh, couple of Nixon next, Steve, don't forget Kim Reynolds, flat tax you know, in I Iowa. She's tremendous governor. She's fantastic. Uh, she is, yeah, she tr- is a rising star in the party. I love Christy Noem. I mean, the, the, these governors are really adopting free at market pro-capitalism reforms, it is, it is a really fantastic thing to see. And, 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 and don't, way, forget, don't forget Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. Don't forget Glenn well, Youngkin yes, and Winston Sears. They're both total rock stars. And Youngkin, yeah. Youngkin is fighting the CRT in the schools. I mean, he's really fighting it. And he's given parental choice for yep. wearing you know masks in schools. Yep. So there's another lovely revolt going on. Uh, on that score. I mean, governors can be very, yeah, yeah. very powerful and influential. Uh, Monica, I want to also, um, uh, I had uh, Governor Mike Dunleavy of Alaska on the show last oh. night. I had a cup of coffee with him uh, during the RGA. And, you know, what Biden has done, Alaska is oil, okay, oil and gas. And they have closed down Anwar, closed down the Naval Reserve, closed down Willow. They've gotten so bad now, they're using something called the Antiquities Act. Get this. I think it was a Teddy Roosevelt thing or something. Antiquities Act to end commercial fishing in the Bering Sea. Uh, commercial fishing is a gigantic part of the Alaska economy. Now, here's my point. And Don Levy was all over this last night. He's a smart guy, another s- solid governor. Um, what Biden has disempowered, Monica, has disempowered America's energy and therefore disempowered America and has re-empowered Putin-Russian energy and therefore their global power. That's what Biden has done. And he started within one hour of his inauguration of uh, ending the Keystone Pipeline. But he is like changing, Biden is changing the world balance of power against the United States and for Russia. Go figure. Yeah, well, this is traitorous behavior, if you ask me, um, because it so obviously tips the balance of power in the energy sector, but more broadly in the global economy, to the world's worst bad guys who are sitting atop a ton of energy reserves like Russia, like Iran, like other countries in the Middle East that are not particularly friendly to us. Um, Look, President Trump did the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen any president do single-handedly to the American economy. And we talk about tax cuts, whether it's Reagan or George W. Bush, even JFK. And we know the kind of boom that that generates. We know the kind of boom that deregulation generates. But we have not seen until President Trump the kind of boom that energy independence Hmm. generates for the United States. It's so important economically. But even more important, geopolitically, because it frees us up from being at the mercy of uh, very, very hostile regimes. At the same time, what Biden is doing is when we talk about federalism, so many of these states that generate tremendous domestic energy production for the United States happen to be red states, whether you're talking about the Gulf Coast, whether you're talking about Alaska. And so what he is doing with energy, but also across the board, is trying to shut down these red states because 
they are all making them and the Democrats look bad because they're succeeding across the board, whether it's energy or mask mandates, vaccine passport, whatever it might be. The freedom that you see in the red states Mm. is making the blue states and, and the federal government under Biden and the Democrats look bad. So therefore, they have to be crushed. All right. Well, the cavalry's coming. Kids, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Please stay with us. We've got uh, Monica Crowley and Steve Moore, much more. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after a brief message. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right. We are back talking money and politics with Monica Crowley, former Assistant Treasury Secretary, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And I'm going to tout his book, even though it's got a terrible title. It's called Govzilla. How the relentless growth of government is devouring our economy and our freedom. You know, the relentless growth of government, Steve Moore, and I I know I have to get you out so you can prepare for your show. Um, That was a joke. Anyway, um, Janet Yellen says that Joe Biden is really the supply sider. He's the modern supply sider because climate warming policies to end fossil fuels child tax credits and allowances and paid family leave and other entitlements. That's the way to get people, more people working and create investment and productivity in the economy. And all the supply side stuff that you have been touting for the last 40 years, like tax cuts and deregulation, doesn't really work. Didn't have a good performance. What do you make of that, Janet Yellen? <laughs> Well, I'm going to ask that, but before we leave the subject of the governors, I just want to make one one last quick point. I'm going to make a prediction to you guys, okay? You ready? Republicans are going to win the governorships in Wisconsin, in Illinois, in Pennsylvania, in New York, and Connecticut in the fall Ooh. of 2022. Wow. We Actually, are you know what? You, terrible you... governors out of office. We're going to, I'm from Illinois, Pritzker, I call him Putzker. He's done. He's been the worst <laughs> governor. You're, you know, all these, go, no, all these blue state governors shut down their economy. They did not deal with COVID in a cogent, effective way. They killed their businesses. Uh, they, they shut down their schools. Americans all over the country are angry about that. I think we're going to see a sweep. Remember, like we saw in 1994. And, uh, and I think you're going to see Republicans taking over the state houses around the country, just as Glenn Youngkin did. You know, let me tell you, you you could well be right. And he here in New York, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, Monica and I stuck in New York forever. uh, (laughs) This crime fiasco and what just happened. And, you know, thousands of cops on Fifth Avenue for the funeral of this uh, young detective Rivera who was killed in a domestic violence. I mean, people are fed up with it. And I think Republicans can take the state house in New York. And I also think you got a shot in Connecticut. I do. I I like what you said. I think it's very reasonable. Well, Larry, remember, Republicans almost won the governorship in New Jersey and they got outspent, what, 20 to one there. And they still almost won. So there is something going on in this in this country. Now, just one quick thing on the supply side, you know, the idea that Biden's a supply center. The government, <laughs> look, what the liberals believe is that government is the supply side of the economy, right? They, <laughs> and, and so under that, you know, rubric, I guess it is a supply side, you know, economy we have right now. But they forget that under the biggest boom we've had in the last 50 years started under Reagan 
and then it continued under Trump with tax cuts and deregulation and the whole nine yards of, of pro-growth uh, policies. Yeah, no. And she's also predicting inflation will be 2% this year. Young. <laughs> so I, I'm sorry to say, uh, not only is she wrong, but she's wrecking her, her whole uh, uh, credibility. She is. Anyway, Steve, you go prepare. Monica, uh, I want to get you into your former life as a Cracker Jack foreign policy analyst and get your quick read on this uh, Putin, Ukraine, uh, Biden. And, you know, Anthony Blinken, um, Robert O'Brien, our national security advisor in Trump administration, talked about Blinken's homework assignment where he wrote out a paper to give to Lavrov and Putin about what the United States really believes in. I mean, where's this going, Monica? Because it reads like, frankly, in, in the in the battleground of ideas and narratives, it reads like Putin is winning and we're losing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole homework assignment Blinken gave to the Russians, it's so stupid. And more importantly, it's so dangerous. It reminds me of the actual physical reset button that Secretary Hillary Clinton gave to her Russian counterpart, Lavrov, who is still the foreign minister. Um, Look, American weakness is provocative. American strength is a deterrent to the world's worst bad guys. And so when America is either weak in real terms, Larry, or weak in perception, either way doesn't really matter because America's adversaries will take full advantage of that. And when you have a weak commander-in-chief, as we do now, who is then the embodiment of America's weaknesses, you will see thugs like Putin take full advantage. Frankly, I can't blame Putin. I can't blame Xi. I can't blame the Iranian regime or Kim Jong-un or ISIS, al-Qaeda, the Taliban. They are all maximizing this moment of America's weakness, knowing that this commander-in-chief and his team will not retaliate in any Mm. meaningful kind of way. So, of course, they're going to advance to promote their own nation's interests. Of course they're going to do that. I think on the Russia-Ukrainian border, look, if you're on the eastern frontier there, you really have a cause to worry because you know that Putin is going to seize to this moment, as he already has. And the Europeans are completely craven. They're totally cowardly, particularly the Germans that have thrown their lot in with the Russians. And now all of Eastern and and mid-Europe, is they're all completely dependent on the Russians for their energy source. So they've handed Putin an energy extortion tool on them. And now they're all, you know, at the feet of Putin. So they don't want to ally themselves with us over Ukraine's territorial integrity because they're so... It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.